Let me introduce you to the most important players in today's event. I'm a conservative and a proud Kentuckian. Mr. President, you will not fill this Supreme Court vacancy. It's about issues we worry about every single night. This is one of the most awesome scenes that you can find in politics in this country. All right, everyone, welcome into what I am going to consider a special edition of the Pegasus Podcast uh, because... I joked about this with Caleb before we started. We we don't nearly do enough podcasts in which we are consuming bourbon. For the 170-something episodes that I've done of this show, uh, not nearly enough of them are we consuming bourbon in some form or fashion or talking about it. And so today, uh, we're going to drink a little bourbon. We're going to talk about uh, bourbon and Kentucky. Uh, excited to have joining me uh, Caleb Franz, who is the program manager at Young Voices. You guys have heard us talk about Young Voices over the last couple of months. Um, you are also the host of a, your own podcast called Profiles in Liberty. Uh, we'll talk about that at the end of the show, too, because I think that's a, a great show that a lot of our listeners would like to check out. Um, but Caleb, welcome to the Pegasus Podcast. Hey, Jared. It's, it's great to be here, and uh, I am excited especially to talk about... Uh, the subject matter of today's episode, which is going to be all about uh, the the heavy spirit of Kentucky. So uh, I want to first talk about your article that sort of prompted this, uh, me wanting to do this podcast. But as you mentioned, when you walked in here, it is Bourbon Heritage Month. It is, uh, yeah. Which it's just so perfect. I was, uh, I was up in New York last week uh, and upstate new york so it was it was getting cold fall was sort of setting in the, the leaves were are already changing up there not quite here in kentucky yet but i do love the idea of like it's getting colder mm-hmm. you have a little bourbon to warm you up um and so we have some bourbons here so if you guys if we start to slur our speech by the end of the episode <laughs> that's that's the reason why but um we're also going to kind of talk through some bourbons that we have on the table today and kind of celebrate things but uh, the reason that I, I wanted to bring Caleb in is because you had an article published last week in the Courier Journal. Uh, the title of it, What's Good for Beer Should Be Good for Bourbon, Make Home Distilling Legal. Let's talk first, uh, outside of it being you know Bourbon Heritage Month and this being such a, a quintessential part of kind of Kentucky's culture and economy, uh, what kind of prompted you to, to dive into this kind of issue? Is it is it a pet peeve that you just want to sort of make some at home or what was the what was the impetus for this this piece? Yeah. So, I mean, I was I was kind of looking up, um, you know, first of all, I, I, I love the the heritage of, of bourbon and I'm sort of a, a history file, uh, so to speak. Uh, I, I really get into um, the craft and the creation of, of uh, several different things, especially as it relates to things that are as uniquely as American as uh, as Kentucky bourbon is. And um, I was really looking into, well, I, I'm about to buy a house uh, for myself, and, and I would really like to, to get into uh, the craft of it. And then as I started looking into it, it quickly became apparent that that is not legally possible. Uh, mm-hmm. People still do it, but uh, not, uh, not with the blessing of the law. And, and that really is inhibitive of, um, of a, lot of, uh, a lot of different uh, entrepreneurs that uh, have the possibility to sort of craft their own creation, so to speak. Um, they have that, that barrier that a lot of people kind of overlook, especially because that barrier is not there anymore for uh, beer or wine. It's only there uh, in its existence currently for, for craft spirits. 
and it really became apparent to me how unfair it was for for people who want to uh, try their hand at at craft spirits and and also how it's really making criminals out of people who who aren't aren't criminal underlords or anything like that they're they just uh, are hobbyists or enthusiasts or maybe they want to eventually get into the commercial market um but they they neither practice first and uh, that's kind of the catch-22 of this is that in order to get into the commercial market you have to get a permit in order to get a permit you have to know what you're doing in order to know what you're doing you have to practice yeah. well you can't really practice unless you have some sort of background or or you know maybe some ties and in, in in which to do that legally so a lot of people um will find themselves breaking the law in order just to to get into that in the first place yeah i thought you know one of the the interesting things you you point out in the beginning of the piece is that elijah craig who many people sort of point to as the godfather mm-hmm of Kentucky bourbon, whether or not he was the first one or not, I'll let that, I'll leave that up for, for other historians to, to debate. But, um, you know, just thinking about Elijah Craig, I have a, a bottle of maker's mark here in front of me. These are, these were started at homes by husbands and wives and yep. they tried things out in their kitchen. Uh, I, I was reading earlier today, uh, Margie Samuels, who was the, the husband, uh, or the, excuse me, the, her husband started maker's mark. They sort of started it together. She was, a big part of the branding of it, but th- these wax tops, which are so iconic, she dipped those in their kitchen with their <laughs> fryer, right? Like the the first you know wax that was melted to dip the top of a Maker's Mark bottle was done in a small kitchen, right? Like it's it's not only kind of like the American story, but it's it's very much like the story of bourbon. Like you sort of start small, you figure things out, you you know you figure out what works and what doesn't work and and to me like embracing that is just like embracing the spirit of bourbon in many ways yeah i agree and and you know the the craft beer market was very much in a similar position before um jimmy carter uh, deregulated uh, the craft beer industry and, and allowed for home brewing to exist, which is uh, sort of the the duality that I I, I put the uh, craft distillery uh, market uh, against. Because whenever that happened, it unleashed this wave of creativity uh, that we know today as the craft beer revolution, um, and that exclusively happened because. Uh, of that deregulation, um, and there's really no reason why we can't have the same thing happen in in uh, in the spirits uh, spirits industry industry as well. Yeah, I also think the the craft beer market too is a good example of you know, the sort of like opposition always has this like parade of horribles mm-hmm. that will have like people will be going blind again mm-hmm. and people like yeah. Uh, I think clearly what we've seen with with craft beer is that there's a way to do this the right way, and that those home brewers can become very legitimate, if not some of the most recognizable brands that can start small, start in one state, then a few states and really grow. The idea that like, you know, it's just, it sort of becomes the wild, wild west out there. Uh, Again, it's this sort of like parade of horribles didn't happen with craft beer. I imagine sort of see the same thing with with stillers too, right? Serious people taking this craft seriously. Right. And, you know, there, there are, uh, spirits and, and, and beer. It's, it's not the same thing, obviously. Um, but the, the same sort of, uh, idea behind this is that, um, whenever you, you push something down into a, to a black market, essentially, um, then that's when the dangerous things are going to happen. Uh, whereas when you lift them up, you can still have certain rules or regulations around them without completely outlawing the practice, yep. um, which is what we saw uh, in the in the craft beer uh, industry 
once uh, home dis- or uh, excuse me home uh, brewing was legalized um, it was that people were allowed to experiment more um, and they were allowed to take some risks with with certain flavors or certain styles um, and a lot of the the things that are well established today uh, started in people's basements or garages uh, and there's really no reason why we we can't have the same thing happen for for spirits yeah I, you know I, I also think too especially here in, in Kentucky but you know bourbon is of course only made in America it is a uniquely American spirit we we wouldn't ever look at other industries that we think is is kind of marquee industries quote unquote and and hamper them down this much right like you can teach yourself a craft and and become an entrepreneur you can this is like the worst example in most of but like you could be the bill gates of mm-hmm. anything else we wouldn't ever think like oh yeah that guy at home like actually no he's a bad guy like let's not let him figure this craft yeah. out like it's so weird to me that that a distinctly kentucky brand that has built this tremendous amount of tourism bur- bourbonism mm-hmm. around itself that we would look at that and say like ah what's what's getting the way of people really taking it like that's a really strange way i think to to approach this industry too yeah and you know kentucky is not the only state that that has this prohibition uh the vast majority of states do and and it is prohibited uh federally as well uh and really until that federal pro- uh, prohibition is removed then there's not a whole lot that states can do but there are certain things that they can do um certain states have uh, taken steps and um, essentially creating these trigger laws for 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 uh, home distilling, in which case they would um, make it uh, legal immediately as soon as the federal prohibition is removed. And that's something that I think uh, should be an obvious first step for a state like Kentucky, uh, which has its roots and heritage so deeply ingrained in bourbon and spirits uh, that it, it seems like an obvious step to make for, for the state. Yeah, I, I do think, too, that this is, you know, uh, sort of a sign of, of larger problems often, too, with, mm-hmm. with a lot of, you know, politicians may say they sort of embrace small businesses as the backbone. I was, I was talking with somebody about this um, earlier about, you know, some, some digital tools and things like that, that, you know, we're going to hit October in a month and politicians yeah. will be home uh, campaigning and say, small businesses are the backbone of our economy. And you're like, hey. I'd love to. I mean, we, you know, there's there's other industries that have faced this prohibition too. I mean, uh, home bakers, right? Until mm-hmm. not not very long ago, here in Kentucky, couldn't do similar things, right? They couldn't bake pastries or whatever, and then you know sell them at the market. It's sort of the same thing here, right? Like these, a lot of these kind of small businesses, this entrepreneurial mindset, the idea of you know taking a hobby and making it a career, the the idea that that you know. Again, these same politicians who will, will kind of campaign on this will come home and say, yeah, no thanks, though, right? Like, it's it's so, like, anti-American, anti-entrepreneurial to me. And it sets a really dangerous precedent, not just for the kind of taboo industries like brewing or distilling, right, that, that have always been the kind of hyper-regulated, but even, you know, the, the mom or the dad who's a stay-at-home parent and bakes during the day and wants to sell it, right? Like, the more that we can embrace 
that entrepreneurial spirit with our laws, I think like the better off our communities are. Yeah, people need uh, really low barriers of entry whenever it comes to this stuff because uh, anytime someone wants to break into an industry, there are uh, regulations, there are rules, there are things that are just rather prohibitive for people to actually get in and and, and try to make something of it or uh, if they just want to, to try their hand at it and see if it works and if it doesn't work, but practice is ultimately what they need uh, and that is what this is in in specifically with uh, spirits but also with uh, as you mentioned uh, a, a plethora of, of industries as well um, it's not it's not uh, it's not prohibited to uh, to spirits uh, specifically either yeah I mean the the government is I'm gonna I'm gonna pop open the old forester here too again we're just doing <laughs> a little bit here so I'm, I'm just going through but um, the irony here, we have a bottle of Old Forester Prohibition style, which I highly recommend. But um, if you were to go on the Old Forester website, you'll note that they were one of the only distillers allowed to operate through Prohibition. Yes, the irony of that is palpable. But this, again, is this, this sort of essence that the government is not good, n- nor should ever pick winners and losers, right? And this is one of the things about uh, creating these barriers to entry like you're talking about. The person who has financing, who has the connections, who, uh, you know, may have had some prior experience, can can get that license, can can start an operation, has the ability to kind of break that barrier. But and especially if we see this in, in minority-owned businesses and mm-hmm. female-led businesses, which are which are breaking into the bourbon industry, which is great to see, but that they don't always have those for lack of a better term, kind of uh, privileges, right? That they don't always know where to start. They don't know how to get that license. And, you know, to your point, you're kind of creating felons out of people who are just either trying to have fun or, yes, yeah. Yeah. And and the government, again, allowing just sort of one single or just a few distilleries to operate throughout Prohibition, which, again, is a ridiculous thing to say out loud, but yes. Um, That, again, like lends itself to this, like, Stop trying to figure out who's doing this right, who's doing this wrong, who you think is the good guy, who you think is the bad guy, regardless of if it's bourbon, if it's home bakers, if it's electricians, the government just isn't good at picking winners and losers, nor should they ever pick winners and losers. Well, I think this goes back, you know, we're, we've really, especially in the era of, of COVID, seen this, uh, this, this strong uh, push towards credentialism and uh, having all of the experts tell you exactly what's right and what's wrong and what you should do and what you shouldn't do. And I think that one of the lessons that we've seen uh, through that is that they don't always know exactly what it is that they claim to know. Mm-hmm. And we as as American citizens, and, and specifically in, in this case in, in Kentucky here, um, I think that that people deserve to experiment and, and see what's right and, and what might work and what might not work. Um, you can have, like I said before, you can have certain uh, guardrails uh, with yeah. that without a complete prohibition uh, on, on certain uh, industries or certain hobbies. Um, whereas you can still still encourage people to, to partake in it and, and experiment with it uh, without it uh, getting out of hand. Yeah. I also think, too, it's this and it's sort of we see this all the time with this kind of like status mentality of like, I know exactly what the next industry is that's Mm going to boom. Right. Mm -hmm. I I kind of mentioned this uh, in the opening that like 
look, 10, 20 years ago, some of these brands that we have on this table that are so iconic were, were floundering, yeah. right? Like they didn't, they weren't the flourishing, you know, they weren't sponsoring the Kentucky Derby like we yeah. think about because the craft cocktail industry isn't, you know, or wasn't what it is today. Uh, and and the uh, people did not, you know, I, I don't mean, I don't, I'm not going to call out any brands, but think of the sort of bottom shelf brands. People, you know, college kids were drinking those with Coke or doing or Coca-Cola and doing shots of them. They weren't embracing these. And then there was this boom you know, that has built up these amazing brands, allowed sort of, you know, small businesses and these people who probably never would have thought that they'd be in this industry to to create generational wealth. Like, like if you had asked somebody two decades ago to buy into a Maker's Mark or a Woodford or an Old Forest, they said, what? no way. Like, bourbon is on its way out. Whiskey is on its way out. Everybody's drinking vodka, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, <laughs> it's low-cal. It, it mixes with everything. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it, it, it go whatever. Everybody's drinking Cosmos, right? Like that would have been the attitude back then. Again, like the government is not good at picking these trends or knowing what to sort of embrace or not embrace. And so when it sets these these either arbitrary regulations or rules or you know invests specifically in one industry, I always just think like, uh, you you may not know what's kind of coming around the corner here. Well, I think ultimately what this comes down to is is this is completely diversifying and and uh, decentralizing all of these different industries, which right or left, uh, most people across the political spectrum think that that's generally a pretty good idea to to not have a centralized uh, authority in in any industry in, in commerce. Uh, we disagree sometimes about you know if if that's good for government or not. But in in commerce, people generally agree that we shouldn't have a monopoly on on X, Y, or Z. Yeah. Uh, and that is essentially what this does whenever you deregulate. Uh, yeah. Which is the great irony of that is that if 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 you know you're so concerned about either the safety or uh, or anything else that you might get out of it. Uh, really, all you're doing is giving a handout to the people who have already established themselves and have uh, no issues with working around all the rules and regulations that they have to deal with because they have the money, they have the lawyers, they have everything that they need to make it work. For them, you're only hurting the people who are just trying to break in and to actually compete uh, with with those those uh, those those big individuals. Yeah. So the the other part of this and and kind of part of why I wanted to talk about this during bourbon. Heritage Month is that so many of these stories come back to the kind of mom and pop, the you know the guy who didn't know what he was doing, and mm-hmm. there's so much of that that history in bourbon. If you've ever toured any of the distilleries uh, on the Bourbon Trail, it's a lot of serendipity. It's mm-hmm. a lot of guys who didn't know exactly <laughs> what they were doing. They were throwing things in barrels and they got lucky. Uh, they were putting you know grains together and kind of got lucky. Um, you know, I, I think of some of these brands that we have on the table and that are throughout Kentucky. And again, that, that sort of beautiful serendipity that created what are now truly iconic Kentucky, uh, iconic Kentucky brands. You, you would have never gotten that if you made every one of those people a felon or if you had that kind of uh, cooling effect on, you know, this embrace of this, this new spirit uh and again it comes back to me that like this is so quintessentially kentucky people think about horses they think about bourbon they think about cold there's only a few things you know that each state has like that 
the more that we can do to embrace those really iconic uh, industries, I think the better off Kentucky is. Well, I think that's that's really the the story of of, of America as a whole too. Uh, and, you know, the people who just kind of throw something together. They're not the the big names. Uh, that's that's kind of what made America special in the first place was this free enterprise system that uh, allows for. Uh, not the most powerful or the most uh, wealthy, but just people who have an idea, who think it might work, that might be a little disruptive, and then they throw it together and it does, and then all of a sudden you have these established institutions that, that we know of that started out uh, as as nothing, as, as people who were starting something in their basement or their garage. Uh, and that is very much the story of not just America, but also, as you mentioned, in Kentucky as well, probably uh, most successfully with, with the amount of bourbon that we have. Uh, and that's, I think, a heritage that really should be embraced by, uh, by, by getting some of these regulations out of the way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to be fair, the bourbon industry is not perfect. There no, are, yeah. there are some, uh, and, and even the, the sort of regulation of it too, there, there's no denying that, uh, there have been failures, there have been mistakes, there has been, there's still over-regulation or over-taxation mm-hmm. of some of these things, right? Uh, you know, it, there there's a lot that can be done to, to make this industry better um, or, you know, to allow it to flourish, right? You know, again, it's it's not about picking winners and losers. It's about letting the, the free market decide who's got the best bourbon, who who is truly doing this the best way, not just the established guys, the, the, the people who can, you know, get their foot in the door. But maybe the guy down the street from you has it figured out yeah. better than, you know, the, the multi-million dollar corporation. And that's sort of what I think Kentuckians want to see and, and again, is kind of the story of America. Um, so switching gears a little bit, I, I mentioned I wanted to talk a little bit about kind of just bourbon itself. Um, so we've got some bourbons here. Um, I, I, my first question, I, I'm, I think I'm allowed to ask you this, Caleb. I try to ask politicians this all the time, and they always punt on it. <laughs> Do you have a go-to or a favorite or a, a one that's always on your shelf or one that means the most to you, any way that you sort of want to describe it, uh, your favorite bourbon, your go-to bourbon. You know, this is, I, I think this is similar with, with me and, and beer as well, but I have, uh, I hold a special place in my heart for the, the bourbon that I, um, found first. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the sort of like, you know, not the the main, I guess three or however many, but the ones that I'm like that looks really, really good, and mm-hmm. it actually ended up being really good. Uh, Buffalo Trace always always holds a, yep. a special place in my heart. Um, although I must say I have uh, been getting uh, quite into Old Forester uh, as we have not one but but two because <laughs> uh, I didn't realize that uh, that Jared uh, already had one, and I brought one of my own as well. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think, I think old Forester is great. Um, but Buffalo traces is, is probably that one that will always have that special place in my heart. Yeah. So that's, that's one that I used to tell people all the time. That was one of my go-tos. I don't know. I don't know that it was always like my, f- my favorite or like it's old reliable. Yes. Yeah. yeah that's a good way yeah. uh, to describe it. The, another one we have on the table here, I'll, I'll open up just briefly. People are, if you're counting, yes, that's three for me. <laughs> um, Woodford Res- oh, that was a good cork pop. Um, Woodford Reserve, which sort of funny enough for me, I had, uh, we did a, a small little bourbon bar at, at my wedding, and I picked three bottles of bourbon to have there. Uh, I had Woodford Reserve, which to me, again, is kind of this iconic brand. I had taken 
both my parents and my in-laws to tour the distillery when they came in, which is a beautiful distillery. Um, not to not to pick favorites, but if, if you're going to do a day in Kentucky, the Woodford Reserve distillery tour and then a day at Keeneland betting on the horses, I think is, is one of the best days you can have. So I had a, a bottle of Old Forester at my wedding. I had a bottle of Old Granddad Bonded, which um, people may know is one of James Bond's uh, mm. go-to bourbons for his, his old, uh, old fashions. And then my kind of go-to budget bourbon, which people may, uh, I don't know, may get some flack for this, but Evan Williams Bonded, which is not going to be on the top shelf of any liquor store you walk into. Uh, I believe it's a screw top, uh, which tells you a little bit about the bourbon, not everything. It's sort of like judging a book by its cover. If it's, right. got a, it's like wine with a with a screw top instead of a cork. Right. Um, but those three for me kind of, you know, three different price points, three different stories. You know, those to me are kind of three that I always point to as uh, being kind of my Kentucky bourbons, I would say. And so... I will say too that I I also uh, have a have a special place in my heart for um, well what we what we started this this conversation off on with uh, with Elijah Craig mm-hmm. um, I, I I do think it, it it like that Old Forester and uh, Buffalo Trace I think are my three go to that are relatively in the same range of, of affordability but also just like the quality is 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 not uh not by any means uh being cheaped out uh, whatsoever mm-hmm. and it's it's just excellent do you remember like when so uh, podcast listeners will know this i'm not originally from kentucky but of course i had partaken in bourbon before moving here or even knowing that i was going to move here um, I would say Maker's Mark was one of the ones that always stuck out to me. I'm a, I'm a big branding person, mm-hmm. and so yeah. I was probably the, the dumb guy that walked in and was like, that one looks cool, you know, <laughs> uh, and ignored all the other fantastic bourbons that are on the shelf. Um, but I remember, you know, drinking Maker's throughout college and, uh, you know, having friends who knew what Maker's Mark was and, okay, the, you know, the, the wax top, like, yeah, 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 I know what that one is. Uh, you know, you could send any one of my dumb friends to the the store and said, just get the one with the, the red wax top. Right. Um, it's hard to mess up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I think for me touring the distilleries was the moment where I sort of started to realize like, Oh my God, there's, there's an amazing amount of history here. Uh, there's all the things we talked, right. This is, this is like pure Americana. It's, yeah. it's this entrepreneurial spirit. It's kind of like beautiful serendipity, uh, you know, it's it, it, there was failures, there were like all these sorts of things. The government's taxing them too much. It's like the perfect American story. So for me, it was really being able to tour them and, and see the history. Do you, do you have a moment where you sort of like remember kind of starting to care about bourbon or you know care about the industry? Yeah, uh, honestly, for me, it uh, wasn't through through bourbon or, or spirits uh, directly, but it was really through uh, the craft craft beer industry mm-hmm. um i really really got into it uh whenever i i first turned 21 um and uh, ever since then i just became obsessed with the actual craft of of creating all of these unique flavors and and unique tastes and and things that i i, I just thought there was something that was uh inherently 
uh, sort of, uh, you know, free market or, or yeah. libertarian, so to speak, about uh, that yeah. entire story about how the craft beer uh, industry came to be in the first place. Um, so I, I really dove into that. And then that was a pretty easy sidestep into uh, into the bourbon market as well. Um, and I mean, you know, bourbon is, is the, the spirit that I, I always go to, um, if, if not bourbon, then something like scotch or you yeah. know, something in that family. So, um, I, I think that, uh, that for me, it was, it was definitely the, the craft beer industry, but it was a pretty easy, um, a pretty easy sidestep into, into bourbon from there. Yeah. I have to tell a quick scotch story and my forefathers, my long ancestors are going to hate hearing this one. <laughs> um, Every year on my birthday, I, I buy myself a, a nice bottle of, of bourbon, you know, $100 plus or something like that, you know, which we can debate on what that price point is. Yeah. Again, there's there's some real beauty on that 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 low shelf. I don't want to disparage anybody from looking there. But uh, I, t- I sort of try to treat myself every year on my birthday. And so, gosh, this was maybe three, four years ago. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to switch it up this year and I'm going to get a bottle of scotch. Mm-hmm. My family is sort of scottish we have a little bit of uh, you know kind of uh, heritage there um if you see any of my brothers we have red beards when we grow out our beards so that's that's the most scottish thing about me but uh, there was a bottle of scotch again i won't name it just to, so i don't throw anybody under the bus uh, but i had been a bourbon drinker and it was you know bourbon is caramel and apple and pear and dried fruits and uh dark chocolate it's sort of a not sweet but it's it tends to favor those sweet notes and uh, boy, I did not know what I was getting into with my bottle of, of scotch, my frankly expensive bottle of scotch that I got. Um, I had one glass of that, and it has sat and collected dust on the back of my <laughs> shelf as bottles of Buffalo Trace and uh, Four Roses and, and, and just sort of cycling <laughs> it out in the front. And that bottle of scotch, unfortunately, sits in the back. Uh, I do like some Irish whiskeys. I like uh, Irish whiskey a lot, uh, actually. Yeah, uh, uh, Green Spot. Actually, I'm a, a big fan of, of Green Spot. And there's a couple of scotches too. Monkey Shoulder, which is a little bit sweeter too. But um, I always think it's so funny when when people come in and they see that full bottle of scotch and then nearly empty or half mm-hmm. empty bottles of uh, you know Pinhook or some of the other you know whatever it may be in front of it that uh, does not have much dust on it because it, it sort of cycles in and out. But uh, that, to me, too, is a reminder that, like, ah, there's a part of me that's – that makes me a Kentuckian. When the scotch yeah. is sitting in the back shelf and it's collecting dust and you're cycling in and out bourbons, I think that, that means you got a little bit of the Kentuckian. You, you know, know I'm, I'm someone who really uh, – I really like pairings, so, you know, mm-hmm. whether it be food pairings or, or weather. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a stickler for yeah. having that right sensation and, and making sure that, that it is uh, paired appropriately. And I find that scotch is, is uh, the best or at least my favorite thing to drink whenever I am having a cigar. Um, yeah. but otherwise I agree. I tend to go with, with, with bourbon before That's I, the I only thing that. we're missing here is cigars. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> okay. Final question. I, I asked this, I've asked this to people in the past too, when we've done bourbon episodes, um, and you, you just sort of led me into it a little bit, but your favorite experience with bourbon, or if you could pick an ideal sort of experience with bourbon, what would that be? 
You know, I, I, I do think that bourbon is, is best experienced in the fall. Mm -hmm. um, and I kind of compete because my other go-to drink is uh, seasonal Oktoberfest throughout the fall. So um, it, it depends on uh, what my mood is there. But, but having a, a nice fall evening uh, drinking bourbon on, on my back porch, um, possibly with a cigar in hand, uh, would, be, would be probably my, my go-to ideal circumstance in which I'm drinking. Yeah, so I am going to – I'll take that one, but I'll sort of add one on because I do think enjoy it in the fall, like on your porch by yourself as the sun sets. It's very cliche, but mm -hmm. I do think it's one of the best ways to enjoy Crisp air and Yeah. Yeah, warms you up just enough yep. kind of inside yep. that it's that it's perfect. Um, I, I, I also think, too, one of the, the best parts of, of both bourbon but bourbon culture is – sort of entertaining in the, in the sharing of it. Yes. Um, yeah. And and one of the things I've, I've found is the best way to introduce bourbon or really any spirit to somebody is, is with a cocktail. Uh, and so I think, you know, making cocktails for friends where, you know, it's just enough bourbon in it where they sort of get a sense of it. And um, I think we know bourbon tends to be uh, drank more by males. And so I have some cocktails that, you know, women tend to, to prefer a little bit more. And just to introduce somebody where they can say, you know that brown liquor looked intimidating, but it's actually beautiful. There's some, yeah. there's, uh, there's a real story to it in, in some senses, right? We've got four here. They they all look different, and I mean, the average person would say they look the same, but they're all you know different tinges. To us, that, they they're yes. very obviously. <laughs> um, you know, even in a cup, right, and those sorts of things, and and the different proofs and the different mash bills, and so I I love to sort of introduce that to somebody. Uh, through a cocktail, and so I think entertaining and sharing bourbon is a, is a great way to do it. And so hopefully for our listeners during this this Bourbon Heritage Month, uh, you can enjoy a little bourbon and celebrate bourbon and share it with others, because uh, I think that's sort of the essence of of Kentucky bourbon too. Yeah, yeah, I I agree, and and uh, hopefully that you have received a few of our recommendations. You might be able to find uh, some of uh, some of the choice ones, uh, so to speak. Absolutely. Caleb, thank you for joining us today. Again, if people want to find your article, it was in the Courier Journal last week titled, What's Good for Beer Should Be Good for Bourbon, Make Home Distilling Legal on the opinion page. Uh, Caleb, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for indulging in a little bit of bourbon with us. Um, if people want to find more of the content that you're putting out, I mentioned your podcast, mm -hmm. what's the best way they can find that uh, or find the, the content that you're producing? Yeah, so uh, I'm on Twitter at Caleb Franz. Uh, my show is called Profiles in Liberty. Um, it is a history show where I kind of go through uh, different individuals throughout history and tell their story in the way that I think uh, either uh, either someone who you may ne never have heard of or uh, someone who you probably have heard of, but in a light that uh, is, is refreshing and unique. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of working on the third season of, of that show uh, currently. Um, and that is anywhere that where you can get podcasts from. So, Perfect. Caleb, thank you again for joining us today. Thanks, Jared. Pegasus Podcast is brought to you by Bluegrass Media Lab and Pegasus Institute. If you like what you heard, share it with a friend, leave us a review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. To learn more about our work on improving the lives of all Kentuckians, visit PegasusKentucky.org.